Well, good morning. It is 9.01 and counting, so we better get started. So let's open up with prayer. Holy Father, you are very good to us. You've given to us another day, and uh, you've given to us the opportunity to be together, to uh, have fellowship with one another, and to come together around our worship of you and to reflect upon you in a way that's unique from the rest of the week. And Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity, this chance to be uh, with you. And Lord, as we look into your word, as we study what it means, I pray your spirit would be with us, open up our minds, help us have understanding, and help us to be uh, open to the truth, to what you had for us to know. And Lord, may you just guide us through all of this. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. My name is uh, Dan Whitaker. I keep forgetting to, to say my name. I'm supposed to do that when I get up here. I, I figure that everyone knows me, you know. But it's uh, good to see you this morning and uh, to be able to look at these um, these things that we, we see from the book of Genesis, from creation. Our roadmap today, what we'll be trying to do is uh, we're going to do some review, some uh, things to consider in our conversation with other people over these, these uh, issues, this topic. We'll be looking at God's word and uh, what it has to say about the origin of life, how um, human beings are amazingly unique, and what has gone wrong with the understanding that we have of these things and uh, making the case for hope in a creator. So that's what we're going to be trying to cover this morning. First, we're going to go into review. Uh, last week, we looked at Genesis 1, um, and we looked at the first uh, four days of creation. And one of the things that we really talked a lot about was what it means when, um, in the book of Genesis, it says the evening and the morning was the first day, the evening and the morning was the second day, and so on for every day. And so what we uh, looked at was that the, the natural interpretation of Genesis 1 is that it's literal 24-hour days of creation. That's the, the normal interpretation. Um, to get a different interpretation, you have to read into it something else. And so the, what the actual words there um, are saying are telling us that that creation happened in six days, six literal 24-hour days. And we talked a little bit about um, day, and, and we're going to, this morning, hopefully, watch the video that I couldn't bring up last week uh, that's going to go into that some more. Um, yom is the word for day in Hebrew, and so that is the, uh, the word of discussion in the video. And do I click it again to start it? Okay.
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. But what does the Bible mean by day? Rome in Hebrew, 24 hours or something else, an era, or millions of years perhaps. The, the, the key is the context for that. Rome is the uh, Hebrew word for day, and uh, it's very much like the English word in its flexibility. When I look at the, the context there of Genesis 1, uh, it looks just like a 24-hour day. God is setting up, just like he does everywhere else in Genesis 1. He is setting up the world as we know it today. As a matter of fact, in the creation, God specifies each day <coughs> that it is evening and morning is consistent of a day. And so when I see phrases like evening and morning, the first day, and so forth, God is simply structuring days just like we see them today. The word day, or day, comes up often in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, for example, the text says that in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Let me read it to you right out of the book of Shemot, sometimes known as Exodus, in the Torah. In English it says, remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Six days shall you work and accomplish all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to Hashem your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your slave, your maidservant, your animal, and your convert within your gates. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. There's really little controversy about what the word day means when you get outside Genesis 1. When you look at a passage like that, it, it seems as if it, it's almost certain that it's a six-day, 24-hour day that's being talked about there. These words were actually written by the very finger of God on tablets of stone. You know, we say the Bible is the word of God. That's true. God made men by his spirit to write these words and so on. But Exodus 20 and the verse in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and sea and all that in them is and rested on that seventh day and blessed the Sabbath day and commanded to keep it holy and so on. That was written by the very finger of God. If you have a figurative day in the creation account, then the fourth commandment does not make any sense. How did Jesus understand the creation account? Do we believe that the days of creation were long eras? Or 24-hour days. In the book of Mark, Jesus actually says he made the male and female from the beginning. That doesn't make any sense. If the beginning is billions of years before he made the male and female. It only makes sense in the context of the creation week and the literal creation week of literal days. How we read Hebrew, I mean, it just reads very naturally as a literal six-day period. But I feel like people have read this passage for centuries, starting around the late 1700s. That's where you see people wondering about how long the day is. And again, that's going along with the Enlightenment, the, the age of reason. We now need to, uh, reason is now the uh, chief authority, not God, not his word. If the days of creation describe long eras of time before the appearance of humans, then death and suffering appear long before man sinned against God. When you look at the fossil record, it's full of death, uh, disease, for instance, 
Uh, there's evidence of cancer in the dinosaur bones in the fossil record. There's evidence of a brain tumor and uh, a dinosaur skeleton. Uh, you see evidence of thorns supposedly 430 million years old uh, there in the, in, the, in the fossil record and so on. And if you're going to say all that existed before sin, you've got a major problem. First of all, at the end of the six-day creation, God said everything was very good. There are some serious theological implications if the earth is into millions, billions of years old, and that we have death before the fall. Because the problem is going to be with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, for by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. I mean, that's the teaching of the Apostle. So it seems as if death is part of the curse. The Bible begins with Genesis, and it builds upon the teachings introduced there. Long ages would undermine the basic teachings of Christianity. When you understand that Genesis 1 to 11 is actually foundational to the whole of the rest of the Bible and all of our doctrines, you start to recognize if you can destroy Genesis 1 to 11, you actually undermine the foundation of every single biblical doctrine of theology. And that's really what's happened uh, in, in our world in this, in this modern era of history. To be honest with you, if the first 11 chapters are not true history in Christianity form, basically if you undermine Genesis 1 to 11, you are undermining the entire word of God. The issues of the age of the earth, the issues of millions of years and, and, and versus thousands of years, the, the issue in regard to the meaning of the uh, word day in Genesis and so on, it's all related to that fundamental issue of biblical authority. Do we take God at his word? Or do we take man's fallible ideas about the past and add them into the Bible and reinterpret the clear meaning of Scripture? I think they do a really good job of going through and explaining the importance of the, of the uh, interpretation of the word yom. And, and so it's uh, a, a, an important thing for us as we look at it to understand the importance, how, what, how much hangs on it, and how much interconnectedness with the rest of Scripture there is how much of it goes back and, and connects with uh, Genesis 1 and, and the, the following chapters. So uh, we have uh, this really important issue of, of interpreting that word day. Um, question number two is going to deal with, uh, is about dealing with those within the body who don't agree with that interpretation and how do we handle that because and we're going to talk a little bit about that disagreement today you know what what their uh, what their um, ideas are based upon but uh, there is a, a way in which we as as believers are um, to disagree with one another not only within the body but without the body as well and so uh, we see this passage in First in Peter who says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we talked about last week, uh, we looked at this, 
in how we are to um, learn from this verse that uh, when we are dealing with one another, whether it's within the body or without the body, uh, even when we disagree, we need to do it with gentleness and reverence. That, that our approach is um, not to win the argument, but to glorify God. And uh, we are to know why we believe what we believe and be firm with that and, and do due diligence in, in discovering the reasons why we believe what we believe and what we are standing upon. But y- you know how it is with yourself. You know, you don't get persuaded of an argument when someone's yelling at you and shaking their finger in your face, uh, when they're beating you over the head with their, their dogma. Uh, we aren't going to persuade anyone else the same way. The best way to lead someone to truth is to help them discover it, maybe even the same way we discovered it. Take, help them go along that same path and uh, help them to, to see it. And we don't have to... And, and this, and I kind of belabor this because this is my biggest struggle, maybe, at least one of my biggest struggles, because um, arguments get emotional for me, and uh, just always have. Um, when I was in first grade, I got in an argument with a friend at school over Roy Rogers being a real cowboy, because I thought he was a real cowboy, and he insisted that he was um, just an actor. And uh, so we're walking home from school in the park, fighting with each other over this, this, literally fighting with each other. And he was bigger than me, and I was on the bottom, and you know that's how it worked out. I lost the argument. Um, but, but anyway, that's how my uh, discussions tend to go. And so I have, to, I have to work at this. This is something that I really have to concentrate on. And, and uh, when I'm dealing with people, even friends, um, with whom I disagree, especially on things like this, where to me it seems so obvious, why can't you see it? Um, yeah, we need to, to remember um, gentleness and reverence in our discussion, um, having respect for the other person. Okay, um, when we do talk with those who disagree, <coughs> a good rule of thumb is to check our own heart, make sure that Christ is Lord in, in our hearts, um, always be uh, checking that. Um, that really helps with our humility um, when we're um, disagreeing with someone um, oh wait, before we go on. And we should have a robust hope, and that means to dig deep into the gospel. In fact, really, truly uh, know why we believe what we believe. A lot of times, the more sure we are of our belief, the more confident that we are in our belief, more patient we can be with others who disagree with us and sometimes our impatience is rooted in in um, in fear that we really aren't sure about what we uh, believe about something uh, be humble and gentle uh, we um, can admit that there are things that we're ignorant and about and make mistakes over um, but we can also share what Paul says about suppression of truth. And, and um, we can say, you know what? I'm a truth suppressor too. You know, we all have these, these places where we, we uh, push down the truth. And, and um, that's something that's, that's true in our humanity. And uh, we need to, uh, 
to try to overcome that. Recognize it and overcome it so that we can find the truth because the truth is what we're after. The truth is our gold. And that's what we're trying to discover. Doing it with reverence and fear that our hearts and minds are captive to God and his word. That we are um, really attached to what God has to say. Um, and that this isn't my truth. This is God's truth. This is what belongs to God. And so I can uh, speak the truth in reverence. Um, that's how, that's how my demeanor, my attitude should be. Some things to consider. Uh, avoid eisegesis when investigating the present and the past. You see, we've talked about eisegesis with um, using God's word and how it's inappropriate. We're not to read into God's word what it has to say, but we're to let it speak out to us what it is saying. But eisegesis is not just for God's word. It's not just wrong with God's word. It's also wrong with history, with um, archaeology, with, with any kind of endeavor. When we, try, when we bring into an area of study our own preconceived notions, and we're, we're pressing that into what it is that we're trying to learn, that always will distort it, of course. And so we need to... Um, have the attitude of, of learning with humility and not bringing into it what we have already, our preconceptions about it. Think carefully before applying what we know from re revealed truth to historical and current phenomena. Um, this is the area where I think uh, some of the issues in our Christian world uh, has, has caused some of the disagreement over this particular issue. Um, we have history in the church that um, has been, had, a, had a negative impact upon uh, this very idea. In uh, four, 1543, um, you will know this name, Nicholas Copernicus. Uh, put forth the idea. He actually published a book right before his death. In this book were, was a, um, a really a treatise about his um, idea that the sun was actually the center, the earth revolved around the sun. Up until that point, everyone, scientists, religious people, everybody in the civilized world that ever thought about it, believe that the sun went around the earth. That's what we see, isn't it? And, and so that was the idea. When he published the work, it really didn't cause too much trouble for uh, about 60 years. But finally, um, it received enough attention that um, scientists and church leaders uh, began to speak out against it right against it. They said that his theory didn't have enough uh, scientific evidence. Um, that, and from what I understand, some of his calculations didn't work uh, that had to do with the movement of the stars and so on. And they did work, 
with the idea of the sun going around the earth. Everything had worked up to that point. They could navigate, they could do what they needed to do, and uh, his calculations weren't quite right. And it wasn't until much later that they got those calculations corrected, and it wasn't until much later that it became generally accepted um, as being true, that Copernicus was right, that the earth does go around the sun. And one of, the one of the side effects from all of that is that there were major church leaders who spoke out against what Copernicus had, had put forth. Men like Martin Luther um, and, and others that were very well known, um, both in the, in the Protestant camp and in the Catholic church. <coughs> Excuse me. And so... As a result, because of, I believe, because of that, I mean, I've heard this talked about, um, <clears throat> there are many re very respected theologians, um, Christian leaders today, who are very hesitant to be dogmatic about the literal interpretation of Genesis, Genesis 1. Uh, because, again, we, we, you know, we, we want to you know, not go just haphazardly into contradicting what people are discovering and what it, science is saying. And so uh, they're very reluctant to do that. In fact, many of them still do hold on to an old earth um, uh, position and um, are not ready to, to move off of that. We, in, in our, the last time we did this class, we showed a video of... Very, some very prominent people, including R.C. Sproul, who, uh, will, who do take that position, people I respect. And, and so I say all that to say that within our family, the family of God, uh, we're going to have disagreement on this issue. And how we handle that is going to be really important. And, and so we need to deal with each other with respect and not make accusations and, 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 uh, and so on uh, with people because some of these people care very deeply about God's word and have, on every other issue, sacrificed things for the truth of God's word. And so uh, we need to, <coughs> excuse me, to be, to be uh, thoughtful about that. We need to... Uh, to move on with this, to, to make sure that we think critically, that we get our facts straight, so that we have good understanding. But I would tell you that, you know, in, in seeing the arguments, looking at them, and I'm, I'm sure you all have as well, that I have a really difficult time accepting the, the, old, um, the old earth uh, theory, that there are too many things that are contradictory, and I I really don't think it's necessary for us to give in to what the, um, the scientific community is trying to put forward to it. In fact, not all the scientific community is in agreement anyway, and um, it's sort of like some other issues that are, are prominent in our culture today that where science says something, and then um, later on they say, oops, uh, I guess we were wrong about that one. Um, Science isn't always right. And, you know, sometimes it has to do with that very first point 
the eisegesis. You know, we, we go in and, and we're looking at things and uh, we have preconceptions and uh, we have to have the humility to be able to identify those, get rid of them so we can really find the truth. And that's what science is supposed to be. It's supposed to be finding the truth. Um, another thing is make sure that sources that we're going to quote are not being distorted because of them being taken out of context. Sometimes we can run with things. You know how it is. You get an email from somebody, and they've got this, this great new message. When email was new, you know, I used to get all kinds of, of things and, and then find out that most of it was just made up by somebody, you know. And, and uh, so verifying our sources, making sure that they're contextually correct and so on um, is, is really important. Now, where do we look for the origin of life? This is not a new question. As you can see from the, the picture, this goes back to an early rock and roll band. Up there. That's supposed to be a joke. Okay. Um, the, this, the question goes back a long time. You know, men uh, have been looking for answers to this, particularly people who don't have access to Genesis 1. And uh, so trying to, to determine where we come from. But we have access to Genesis 1. And so we'll be looking at verses 20 to 31 today, days 5 and 6. And we'll see life uh, from the standpoint of things that are not plants. Uh, plants are created on day 3. That certainly is life, but we're talking about um, animal and human life that God created. So, picking it up in verse 20, Moses wrote this. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, 
and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We see here that um, some, some interesting um, things about the origin of life, uh, that it was spoken into existence. God's word has power, and so he speaks creation into existence according to his design, according to the order that he wants it to be. You know, the order of creation is very specific. And planned out by God. It's, not, it's that way on purpose. And so we don't see a, um, a thing, you know, like when I do a project, I get about halfway through and I think, oh, I should have done this back here. And uh, so that's how my projects go. But God doesn't do projects like that. He knows exactly how it's supposed to go together. And so you see his, his plan and the way he does it. And, uh, and so we can, we can look at things like light being created at the beginning, the first day, and yet the sun, moon, and the stars not till day four. The plants are made in day three. So why would God do it that way? That's, that's the interesting part of God's design. And he does it that way on purpose. Now, light already exists, so the plants can grow. They don't need the sunlight to grow. We already know from our culture around here that plants can grow without sunlight, right? We have all the indoor agriculture that goes on in people's houses, you know, in different places around. Um, and and people people can do it. So light, a light is all it takes um, to make things grow. But God then puts the, um, the solar system in place and all of the stars out there and and then we see the order of it. Then he creates the animals. And uh, he, he speaks them all into existence. So you have the birds, you have the, the sea creatures. And then on day um, six, you have the land animals. <coughs> and so um, all of these things God is, is putting into place in the order that he wants it done. And then finally... He takes the dust of the earth and this time molds it together. Takes that dust of the earth, molds it together and breathes life into it. Breathes a soul into it. And this creature is different than all the other creatures. And um, this creature is made in his own image. A very special creature. And uh, what an amazing construction project that is that God does all throughout this chapter as we see it the the glory and the majesty of of everything that he does is all there it's all part of his mind it comes out of of his creativity uh, there's tremendous diversity in in the life that he creates and so when um, if you've ever even seen how the DNA works and how different the DNA is for every single animal and even the subspecies that, and, and so on, the, the DNA is, is uh, just amazing. 
Um, and it's all created according to kinds. And the kinds there uh, are uh, most likely reference to, to families of animals. And so every, every animal reproduces after its own kind. Uh, and so the, you know, the horses are, are bringing forth horses and so on. Uh, it's, it's everything stays within its own boundaries and, and within its own kind. It, God looks at it at the end and he says it's good. It's all good. And, he's, and at the end of day six, he looks back on everything from, from the solar system and, and, and all of the, um, the universe down to the microscopic um, uh, life that he has created. God can look at it and say, it's all good. Everything is working according to um, what he had intended it to be. Um, and it's not until afterwards chapter 3 with a fall where things get out of whack and that's why we live with what we live with today but at that point in time everything was good all life was good and um, and so that's that's uh, a, a very important part of our understanding and our interpretation of Genesis 1 there's nothing dying there's nothing that um, is uh, going wrong with creation. It's all good. Humans reflect the image of God, and man was created to rule and subdue in uh, the, the rest of creation. And so, excuse me, so uh, so we have this, this, uh, this order of creation and where man is put or is given responsibility in creation, a responsibility to uh, rule and subdue. That means to discover, to learn, and to have responsibility for, stewardship of. And the mind of a human being is designed to do all of that. And so one of the greatest things that, that, that we do, and I think one of the things that makes God smile is when human beings are researching and discovering and learning about what he has made and, and learning how to take care of it, how to use it right, and, and what these things are for. I think those are things that, that God takes pleasure in because that's what he created us to do, to, to have a part in, in his creation and, to, and for us to enjoy his creation to see it as valuable and, and to um, participate in, in that part of it. We are especially designed to understand. Uh, the human mind can engage in scientific investigation. We can do research. We can uh, uh, find things and, uh, and put ideas together. The scientific investigation often will, will uh, create inferences for us uh, because if this is true, then, then uh, that has to be true. And uh, I was watching yesterday a video on, um, on how complex the DNA is and how uh, the protein, uh, has, how it's put together and uh, in the research that has been done just in the last 
70 years uh, with the advancements of microscopes and, and so on that they've been able to find out uh, is, is, is really amazing in what we can see and how we can see the complexity of what God created, the complexity of the DNA, which is, is really, really amazing. But man can in, engage in scientific investigation and this does reflect the image of God. And this is something that makes human beings unique. Um, that, that we can reason, we can learn, we can, we can study these things. Human beings are unique in all of God's creation. The human mind can explore the complexities of design in the natural world. And we can understand the mathematical nature of design and the laws of the universe. And so we can learn the physics. We can see how things work, why things do what they do and so on. Uh, you know, the, the calculations of sending a rocket into space is, is amazing to me. Um, but being able to, to get the timing and, and, and how things go um, is uh, a, a, an amazing thing that a human being can understand and grasp and, and uh, then fall in line with the laws of the universe. The empirical scientific method sets human beings free to use their God-given powers of observation and reason. And so that's the empirical method is just taking a, a good look, taking a look and, and uh, set aside pre setting aside preconceptions and just seeing what's there. That's the em empirical method. And that should set us free to um, observe and, and to, to draw conclusions. Um, so what's the problem? Well, uh, <coughs> there is a conflict between the scientific search for the original life um, and the account that we find in Genesis. And why is that? Well, it is um, because man has a problem. The empirical method um, at some point in time was wed to the materialistic metaphysic. And I'm not going to get into philosophy with you. I'm, that's out of my league. But um, metaphysics is simply what you believe to be the ultimate reality. And the metaphysics actually becomes, as we, as we talked about in, in our last series, the glasses in, from which we are looking at the world. And if our glasses are uh, making us see things um, in a clouded way, um, we're going to come to wrong conclusions. And so we talked about that um, several weeks ago. Glasses that we wear, the, the idea was that we're to wear gospel glasses, that that's the clearest thing. Um, the problem for mankind is that man isn't born with that. And in fact, man fights against that and wants, wants to see it from a different angle, a different way. And uh, as you know, from uh, talking with you know, friends, relatives, people you really care about, about the, truth of the truths of the gospel and how that struggle is there inside of them to, to see what, what we have been able to see clearly because God, through the Holy Spirit, has helped us to have the glasses to see it. Um, 
but the normal bent of the human mind is um, not there. Man's bent is to suppress the truth. And so Paul, writing about this and writing about the, the, the problem that humanity has, he, he makes some very clear statements about this. And he says, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And that's the way we all would be without the work of the Holy Spirit within us <coughs> to teach us something else and give us a different set of glasses with which to look. And so the problem is, is that there's a different bent um, that's, that we're born with that is to deny God, to push back at God and try to find another explanation, one that's, that fits me better. Um, and so that is what uh, man's problem is. To, he, he wants to suppress the truth. And um, one of the mo most insightful um, things I've ever read about this issue is uh, in a book um, about faith by Lee Strobel. And he has a chapter in there that deals with evolution. And uh, one of the uh, people that he interviews for this chapter is a Christian um, professor of uh, biology. And so he's talking about the, the weaknesses and, and, and so on of evolution. And from the Christian's point of view, uh, he, he accepts the, the creation um, uh, presentation from the scripture but uh, Lee Strobel asks him well what about your your colleagues you know when you explain to them what you you know how you see things and and what you believe and why you uh, cannot accept uh, evolution um, you know with these great arguments that you have you know wh what do they say and um, his his response was well the bottom line is the implications of the biblical view are too big. They would have to change their life. And so that's, they just don't want to go there. It would, you see, if, you know, just knowing this truth is not where it stops, is it? Um, if there is intelligent design, then there's an intelligent designer. If there's an intelligent designer who is intelligent enough to make us with reason, then he has even greater reason, and he knows us. And that's terrifying. Because if he has the power to do all of this, he has the power to take it all away. And that's terrifying. And to the natural man. And so the implications of Genesis 1 are enormous. And that is part of what's behind the resistance to... Genesis 1. 
the development of modern science has been uh, mostly theistic. If we go back up until uh, the 18, around 1850 when Darwin put forth his book, um, it was, that's how it was, mostly theistic. The, the most science, scientists were Christian and they accepted the, the Genesis account of how things began. But from the Enlightenment and, uh, and certainly from the time of Darwin's book, uh, things have completely changed. And uh, the scientific community is now mostly uh, accepting evolution as the beginning, even if they're not comfortable with it, even if there are things that don't add up. They don't have an alternative that they like better. And so they still stick with it. Um, but in the, in the Christian view, the design requires a designer and that natural laws were created by God. Genesis 1 tells us that God created life. That life doesn't come from this big puddle of ooze and then lightning strikes it and, and something amazing happens there. Now God spoke it into existence. There's intention and purpose with life. It's not just an accident of nature um, that, that it would happen. In fact, it's impossible without purpose for life to exist. There has to be a designer. There has to be a creator. There has to be someone who brings it into existence. It's not possible otherwise. Um, and here we see that life is in the animals and in man is done in two days. And that each animal are done in specific kinds and that human life is unique. <coughs> now, the, in the theistic view, which is the view that there is God and that there is a God who created, there are different points of view. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these today. They will we'll probably hit them in later um, sessions. Uh, but I'm sure you've come across these. There's the old earth creationism we've already mentioned, the gap creationism, progressive creationism, intelligent design, and theistic evolution. Um, gap creationism was one I grew up with. And uh, it was something that was believed uh, quite a bit back in the um, 40s and 50s. I'm not sure how far it went back, except I, I'm uh, it did, it was part of a, a certain Bible translation, um, and, and so it became a prominent and accepted view by many. The gap theory, if you're not familiar with it, is that um, the God created the heavens and the earth, it says, and the earth was, uh, was void. And so that word and is supposed to be the gap, the gap between God made it, made it, making everything right, then something cataclysmic happened, and then the earth was formless and void, and that God had to start over again with it. And the gap is there to, um, to create the, 
or to, or to give a place for the appearance of an old age in our earth and to, to, uh, to say that something happened and what most of them believe is that that's when the fall of Satan happened and he came and destroyed what God had created and then God started over. And this gap could be a long, long period of time. Uh, that is the, the position that um, people in the past have taken. I don't know how prominent it is today. Uh, I remember my first uh, semester in theology, our professor dealt with it really well. And, and, uh, and so the word and there is, is n- doesn't even leave room for that uh, in, in the Hebrew. And I, I'm not even going to tell you anything about the Hebrew. I have no idea. But uh, according to what he had to say, it doesn't, it's not the right kind of a conjunction to leave a room for a gap. And so uh, that's, it's, it's not even possible in the word construction that's there. And uh, furthermore, as we have seen with, with the, the same problems that the gap theory has with the old earth creationism theory, and that is the problem of death coming from sin uh, that's in Romans chapter 5, um, the problem that <coughs> everything being good on each day of creation. Um, and so there are some, some major issues uh, that the gap theory has, and that it's not even really necessary. It's, it's, it's something that, has, that was brought up to try to deal with what scientists were starting to spout, and it's not necessary. You just stick with what the Bible says and let, and let the Bible speak. And so um, that is, for me, the gap theory um, should not be th- uh, taken seriously and, um, and has no value for us. If you are someone who holds to the gap theory, I apologize for, you know, maybe stepping on your toes on that, but uh, that's because I came from that, I kind of have a, a feeling toward it that's, that's pretty negative. Uh, progressive creationism is one that's, that has some popularity, um, and that is that God created over long periods of time and he has progressed in his creation. We'll get more into that, uh, talking about that one. Um, intelligent design is, is a, a view that, that says that God has created everything, but it doesn't require a personal God, a God who is, is interactive with us. And so you can be a deist and believe in intelligent design. Um, you can say that you know God started everything up and then has just let it go. And as we talked about last week a little bit, that, you know, that the, the world, from a distance, everything looks peaceful and, and good. And so um, that's how a lot of people view God's relationship with his creation, that he's from a distance. And that he looks at it from a distance, but he's not personally connected with that. Um, scripture tells us otherwise. Scripture tells us that he is very definitely connected to us. In fact, he is, his happiness, he connects his happiness to ours. Um, I would again, I would recommend J.I. Packard's book, Knowing God, because he, he talks about this a lot in that book. 
Um, God has so connected himself to us and uh, is a personal God and very involved with us. And what intelligent design should um, direct us to is a God who has made human beings relational. If we are relational, it only makes sense that God is relational. And, and so um, it, should, it should drive us in that way. And then we find other answers for why there are problems in the world around us. The, theistic evolution um, is the kind of the, the idea of God is the one who started the evolutionary process. And so it's just kind of inserting God into Darwin's theory. <coughs> the arguments that Christians do make, they'll make them from biblical, scientific, or philosophical and, or I should say, and philosophical positions. Um, the biblical is just looking at the straightforward account, seeing what the Bible says for me, and accepting it that way. The scientific is using inference based upon what can be seen and learning from it. And so, and, and Christians really should be the most aggressive about learning truth about the creation that God has because it's learning about God. We're learning about God when we look at what he has made. He has revealed himself in that creation. Um, and then philosophical, it's using reason to, um, to, to learn about what God has made. Mark Middleberg um, has, has given some, some kind of some advice about our struggle in, in, in um, the arguments of this issue. He says, our greatest opponent is not science or even evolution, but philosophical naturalism, which is materialism. And it's the view many scientists hold that says only naturalistic, non-supernatural causes can be considered. Rather, good science should follow the scientific facts wherever they lead, including to an intelligent designer. And as we're dealing with people in the academic community, uh, the scientific community that are, uh, or sometimes just our neighbors, you know, there are neighbors that have uh, learned these things in school and so on. Um, but they take a, uh, a naturalistic view. And unless I can just see it in nature, unless I can see it myself, I've been, I've been given this argument. I have to see it myself in order for me to believe it. Um, as you know, it's, a, it's a, a silly argument, but they're serious about it. And so, you know, how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, the, the thing that we have to understand is that's what is going to be coming at us. More, it's, it's not really a seeking for truth necessarily because they're, they're caging off what they're willing to accept as data. And so um, that's going to be where our... our battleground is and so it can be relatives that we have people that we really care about um, that are going to take this point of view and that is how the pretty much the scientific community is in fact that the peer pressure in the scientific community is amazing 
uh, for, for someone to break away and, and to come up with a different view um, is very difficult because you, you're, it's easy to get ostracized. In, in, in a different issue in the science community, it's been amazing to me to watch how narrow-minded uh, the scientific community is over global warming. The whole, the whole issue over climate change and that whole thing, if, you have, if you're a denier, um, you can lose um, funding, you can lose your position at, at your university, you can, um, you can lose the right to speak. And so it's, uh, it, the peer pressure is great. And, and so people have chosen to just fall in line and to, to go with it. Uh, what we're going to be doing as Christians, as believers, is going against the grain, thinking differently, um, and not getting into the groupthink of the world that's around us. And so it's important for us to, to understand that that's what we're really dealing with. We're not dealing with, like, pure science, um, because pure science takes us to the truth. And... Um, I wish that was actually more of what we were dealing with. <coughs> the materialism, uh, naturalism view um, comes up with evolution. It leaves out philosophical and biblical and claims to only use scientific method. They are trying to be purely empirical. Um, and uh, in, in most of them are not trying to be dishonest but they are blinded. And so we have to, to have patience as we talk to them, as God gives us opportunities. Uh, be patient and let the Holy Spirit work in their hearts. Points of conversation um, in the origin of life. You know, if we were to sit down with a friend, with a neighbor, a relative, you know, how, how do, what do we talk about when we talk about these issues? Well, life requires matter. That's how God made it. Uh, where does matter come from? It doesn't come from nothing. No, it can't come from nothing. And so if life requires matter, then where does matter come from? And, and that's something that, that's a good, good point to, to discuss. And just have just a, a good discussion about that. Another point of conversation would be how did life originate? Can matter self-organize? Um, another great discussion. Another way of, of just having a discussion with someone who's not a believer, who's not willing to accept that, but let them try to answer the question. How does life originate? You know, when you're in a big group, th that question's going to get lost. But if you're one-on-one -on -one with someone where you can really have a conversation, see what they think about that. Where, do, where does it originate? What explains the information that is the key to life? The complexity of the DNA um, is... It can't just happen by itself. It has to be designed. And how it all works. 
um, it has to be designed. And so talk about that. How, talk about the idea of and think about this, that the, the fact that there, because it is so purposeful, because it is so complex, and because every DNA is so different, um, how can that be uh, without a designer, without someone who had purpose for it? Evolution is a theory that tries to explain complex life systems. It is not a theory of everything, um, especially not the beginning. Um, in this video that I was watching yesterday, it showed the, the tree, uh, Darwin's tree, where he um, has the trunk of the tree and then the branches, and all the branches have the different animals at the end, uh, if you've ever seen that. And so his theory is that that over time, small little incremental changes happened until finally life forms took on the variation that we see today. What Darwin could not ever answer and, and really and did not in his book on the origin of the species and vaguely referred to in a letter he wrote to someone, but what he couldn't explain or didn't really try to is what's below the trunk. Where does that life come from? Where does that life start? What gives it its specialness? What gives it its ability to reproduce? Um, Darwin didn't have a microscope. Darwin didn't ha have the ability to see cells dividing, to see the activity that's going on in the cells, to see the little mechanisms that are there working, to see all those little things that are happening, how each cell is dividing and reproducing itself exactly as it was before. He didn't have the ability to see all that. And, uh, and so he didn't know what we know today. Um, but life is created by God. And so it, uh, it, the theory of evolution cannot explain the beginning, cannot explain how it starts. And in my view, really can't explain how life is what it is today. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, understood through what has been made. It's been clearly seen. God is, has shown us. God has shown us, are we willing to take a look at it? And are we willing to accept that? And and thankfully, God has given to us light to be able to have understanding, the light to be able to see the glasses with which to look at what he has made and to enjoy it. Let's close in prayer. You are God. You are amazing. And what you have made, as we look at it, can does set us in awe. And before you, Father, we must be humble and we must uh, come before you with, with praise and adoration because we get to be part of this. You have made us as well and put us here to be able to know it, to see it, to enjoy it, 
And may we have that spirit as we carry on in our life and have the confidence that you not only have just put us here, but you have planned for us to have purpose and that you have destiny for us. That this isn't just a game for you, but this is a plan of amazing, amazing work that you have done. Father, you have gone so far as to redeem us by sending your son to become one of us. And Father, may we be people who respond to that in love and adoration for you because you are great and greatly to be praised. Amen.